0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus.
1: And I'm April Glazer.
0: Hey, everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, February 27th. On today's show, we'll talk about Vero, Vero? Vero? Vero, the new social network that has people fleeing Instagram and Facebook. We'll look at how the NRA runs its own gun-loving media machine, and how conspiracy theories after the Parkland massacre have bubbled to the top of YouTube's search results. We'll also discuss a controversy over how Facebook charges for campaign ads. There was a report in Wired suggesting that Trump may have faced much lower ad rates on Facebook than Hillary Clinton did in the 2016 presidential election.
1: Later, we'll be joined by FCC Commissioner Mignon Clyburn. We'll talk about net neutrality, the upcoming Sinclair merger, which, if it goes through, will make Sinclair the largest broadcaster in the country and will mean the conservative-leaning network will reach 72% of American homes. We also discuss prison phone rates and what the FCC is doing to help restore communications post-Hurricane Maria.
0: Oh my God, we have so much to talk about today. Last but not least, we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, our picks for the best on the web this week.
1: Okay, Will, how are you doing this week?
0: I'm doing well, thanks. April, can you remember the last time we had a slow news week in tech? Uh,
1: No, I don't think that there are slow news weeks very often. And (laughs) definitely when there's never a slow news week, there's never a slow news week in tech because everything touches technology in some way. So no, (laughs) do you? I I, all right, fair,
0: fair form. No, maybe I mean maybe like over the holidays or something. But that's about it. It's just been. It feels like it's been a crazy time in the tech world, and particularly the stuff that we talk about, which is how tech affects our democracy and society.
1: Honestly, if there's a slow news week, we're probably not doing our jobs. (laughs) So
0: (laughs) if there's no news, we'll we'll make some news.
1: Yeah, well, that's our job. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right. So April, you reported on how YouTube, in the wake of the Parkland massacre surfaced at the top of its trending videos section, a conspiracy video about one of the students who survived the shooting.
1: Yeah, that's right. Last Wednesday, reporters found that the number one trending video on YouTube was a video of David Hogg, uh, who is uh, one of the survivors of the Parkland shooting. And it, the, that video was alleging that David Hogg is a crisis actor, which he is not. He did survive the shooting, but it was the number one trending video on YouTube. YouTube did take it down after the report surfaced, said it was a mistake. But this isn't the first time YouTube has done this.
0: Right. And David Hogg was that, was that young, really well-spoken kid who was strongly making the gun control case. So I can see why people who don't want gun control are going to try to convince people that he's not real or that somehow this is stayed. But what exactly did YouTube do wrong here? I mean, presumably YouTube didn't want to have a conspiracy video, uh, you know, alleging that a Parkland survivor was actually a crisis actor at the top of its trending section. What exactly went wrong?
1: Well, YouTube says that one of the reasons why it misclassified this video and put it in the trending section is because it contained a clip from a reputable news source. Um, and that is kind of what botched its system up. Um, so now, like
0: there was a clip of a TV news broadcast in yeah, between? Yeah, there was a the, clip of a TV okay. news
1: broadcast that was used to make this conspiracy theory video. That means that either you know, YouTube was like found uh, a duplicate video of an original video and it didn't elevate the original Right. So they meant
0: to put in the original news broadcast and instead they got this version that twists the broadcast to say it's a conspiracy.
1: I mean, I don't know what they meant to do, but it means that they didn't privilege the original over one that was where a clip was used, you know, or some other factor kind of led to a loophole where these hoaxers could figure out how to game the trending search feature. Right. And, you know, when I looked through, you know, 15 other. Uh, videos that allege that david hogg was a crisis actor they all used clips from reputable news sources and it made me wonder if this is a way that uh that conspiracy theorists do try to game the system to elevate their like blatantly fake news um to the top of of the uh of the search function
0: That's so interesting. I guess just once again, it's an example of how anytime you try to automate the human editorial process, you're going to end up with a system that can be gamed by people.
1: Yeah, you know, and like YouTube this week, you know, did make some uh, some moves rather to to rein in uh, the conspiracy theories that are flying wild on their site, uh, they took down a video from Alex Jones uh, of Infowars that also alleged that Hogg is a crisis actor. I can't
0: believe Jones is still at it with this after he got called on the Sandy Hook trutherism.
1: Yeah, he did this during Sandy Hook too. And, you know, the videos uh, in which he attempts to, to paint the parents of the victims of the the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting as uh, crisis actors are st- were still up on YouTube yesterday, um, you know, and I asked YouTube if they're going to take those down as well. They did not get back to me about that. But, you know, then uh, Jones got another strike. Uh, another video taken down today uh apparently YouTube has a policy that with 3 strikes uh your account is terminated and so one more strike and and Alex Jones will lose one of his main kind of arteries to uh to his followers and his adherents so you know this is not an inconsequential thing when when YouTube starts to take action here Alex Jones has a robust network of people who really follow him um adamantly and uh and it will not be inconsequential if if he loses his YouTube platform.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to see the InfoWars rant where he talks about being censored by YouTube.
1: Oh, he talks about that already. <laughs> but uh but but we'll see what happens when uh when he doesn't have a channel to talk about that on. In other technology news this week, a new social network has gained popularity called Vero and I'm probably mispronouncing that. But uh, the idea with this social network is that you actually pay to get an ad-free experience, you know, uh, on like Facebook, which is saturated with ads, which has ostensibly been toxic for democracy and for our attention spans. I'm a little confused by this because I feel like every six months or so on the dot, there's another new social network that gains steam and then fizzles out rather quickly. Will, can you help us kind of understand what the hype is around this one?
0: That's a really good question. And I think you are not wrong to say that it feels like every six months some new social network comes along promising to be the alternative to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram that we've all been craving. That's what happened this week with Vero. And the timing is a little hard to pin down. I actually don't know if it's Vero or Vero either. It was incredibly obscure until a couple weeks ago. It's actually been around since 2015, and it was founded by the son of the assassinated Lebanese leader Rafik Hariri, so billionaire Ayman Hariri is behind the social network. And yes, so the idea is that this would be a social network that you pay to join rather than having it for free and getting ads, and what that would enable it to do is not be harvesting your data. They promise no algorithms, no curation, you're just going to see everything from everybody in a chronological feed. All the sort of things that people complain about with the big social networks, this is offering to solve. Now, whether it actually does that is really hard to say. When I tried to sign up yesterday their servers were down, and I was unable to sign up. Lots of people have reported bugs with it. It seems like it's not actually all that functional. Maybe.
1: Why would people join this though? Beyond the ad free thing, is that really it?
0: Well, I mean, let me let me put it back on you. I mean, we're all we're criticizing Facebook a lot for the way its algorithms distort what we see in our feeds, for the way its ad driven model, um, you know, incentivizes them to. Per, uh, to purvey sensationalism and polarizing content, wouldn't you like to see a social network that came along that was just sort of about interacting with friends and wasn't optimizing your feed at all time for at all times for what was getting the most clicks or the most shares?
1: Uh, sure, I just don't know that I trust the growth model of Vero because the idea is that uh, the first million users or something is free, and then everybody else just pays a very very little bit of money. Um, They would have to get a lot, a lot, a lot of users to be able to afford like one engineer's salary. So (laughs) I guess (laughs) I just don't trust that what they're saying is actually going to be sustainable in any way. Um, You know, social networks are changing their economic models all the time. And uh, and how they monetize, you know, our time spent on the platform. And so, you know, I don't see why they wouldn't introduce ads in the future or something else in the future that they say they're against now.
0: Right. So that's that's really a fair question. I think it's unlikely that this app catches on, frankly. I mean, we've seen so many of these, as you alluded to. There was Peach. There was Ello. There was if you go back even further, there was Diaspora and App.net
1: and that's the thing. These, like, ad-free social networks, the concept of that really came out of the free uh, software movement. Um, after Snowden, there was a, a push to, to build all kinds of surveillance-free and ad-free social networks that never really caught on.
0: That's interesting. So why do you think it didn't catch on?
1: Oh, because they just didn't have – they weren't as shiny as Facebook, you know? It, it was also uh, the issue of uh, just kind of the network effects. If not everyone's there, then no one's there. That's the whole point.
0: Right. And that's, and that's the fundamental problem that keeps, Facebook, it keeps Facebook's position so unassailable, is the fact that nobody wants to be on a social network where only 10% of your friends are there. You need all your friends there. And yeah. if they're charging you to sign up, then they're never going to get to that size. So they actually have an interesting workaround, which is that Vero says the first million users get free accounts for life. And then after that, people will get charged. I imagine that seemed like a huge number when they first launched it. But they told me yesterday that they're actually approaching a million users already. It's really not that many when you consider that Facebook has 2.2 billion users. So I think they might be in trouble right right around now. Uh, I think they might start to hit the brakes as people face the choice of actually paying to sign up for a social network.
1: Honestly, unless these social networks are appealing to a specific community. I really don't see a lot of sustainability in them outside of, you know, outside of the existing, you know, behemoths. Uh, I'm thinking of Gab, which is uh, a social network that I followed quite closely that caters to uh, free speech enthusiasts, but has really become a home for those on the alt-right. Right. Right. Free speech Uh,
0: enthusiasts, a.k.a. racists who want to be able to be uh, racist. (laughs) I
1: mean, I don't want to say that because I do think that. Uh, free speech is an incredibly important concept and I would consider myself uh, enthusiastic about free speech as well in many ways, but I am certainly uh, aware of the fact that the term has been co-opted in the past eight months in 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 really specific ways by uh, neo-Nazis and, and people on the alt-right and racists as an excuse for them to forward and peddle their hate speech. Yeah, that's, um, a f- that's
0: a fair point and a good clarification. I agree with that. I think that Vero probably won't be the social network that comes along and dethrones Facebook and Instagram, but but, you know, the demand for it is clearly there. It's As we speak, it is number one on the App Store, even though the thing barely works. So if somebody actually comes along with one that works, maybe, maybe there's an opportunity.
1: Also, if somebody knows what makes something number one on the App Store, could you please shoot us an email? <laughs> because I'm not exactly sure it's just popularity. No, um, it's in not, fact, yeah. it's not, right?
0: Right. Apple has an okay. algorithm that de- determines what appears at the top of its okay. charts, and it has something to do with like a spike in popularity relative to some baseline, but nobody knows exactly how it works except for people who work at Apple, and they're super secretive, so they won't tell us.
1: I mean, we're talking about charts, and we don't really know how people get on them, so... That's a longstanding problem for all charts in general.
0: (laughs) If somebody knows Uh, how to get If Then to the top of the the iTunes podcast chart, please let us know.
1: Yeah, definitely. Shoot us a line. Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with FCC Commissioner Mignon Clyburn. A quick note for our listeners, my interview with Commissioner Clyburn was recorded last week on Tuesday, February 20th, two days before the FCC announced the official guidelines for the net neutrality repeal were published on the Federal Register. Now, those rules are not going to go into effect until 60 days after that publication, but just wanted to share a note with our listeners about when we recorded this podcast. Our guest today is Minion Clyburn, a commissioner on the Federal Communications Commission. She served as acting chairwoman following her appointment by President Obama in 2013, but she began her work at the FCC in 2009 as a commissioner and spent 11 years prior to that on the Public Service Commission of South Carolina. Welcome to If Then, Commissioner Clyburn. Thank you so much, April. It is an honor to have you here. So I'd like to start off with you know, the the big question in the room at the FCC, and which has been for some time, net neutrality. I'm curious, uh, you know, what is there left to do with net neutrality now that the vote has already happened? And it seems like we're just waiting for the rule to be published for these ISPs to be able to block, throttle and do whatever they want as long as they disclose it. Is there anything left that the FCC can really do at this point
2: or well, that you can do? <laughs> well, I like to believe that we all uh, have room to weigh in. You are right. We are waiting any day now for the rules to be published in the Federal Register. And that is an important timeline or or point in time for a lot of people uh, to position themselves to uh, be able to make uh, their feelings known officially in court. Um, It's a a timeline for those um, on on the Hill, meaning uh, those uh, legislators. Um, I think it is another point for all of us uh, to ask ourselves a, a question. A very simple one: Who should control your online experience, mm-hmm. and how much does it mean to you? And and what would you be willing to do, uh, or to say, uh, or or to speak to um, when it comes to uh, that experience? Should it be you, or should it be a multi-million uh, or billion-dollar internet service provider that answers only to shareholders and their bottom lines? And so, um, for for the public. Um, I think it still means making their voice heard. Uh, No policymaker is too small to speak to. Uh, You've got uh, state and local uh, officials uh, that have a voice uh, that uh, federal lawmakers listen to. Um, You have an SEC that's supposed to uh, listen to you. Um, So, uh, again, even though um, the majority has moved in a very definitive direction, the fight is not over if you believe in a free and open Internet.
1: Right. And, you know, there is the movement for Congress to take action with the Congressional Review Act, which would undo uh, what the FCC has already undone with net neutrality and kind of restore the old rules. And Democrats really rushed to that. I mean, it didn't take long for everyone, it seems, you know, in terms of Democrats to, to hop on board. And that makes me wonder, do you think that network neutrality could be a central issue that elected officials want to rally behind come the
2: midterms, you know, particularly for young voters. Right. I listened to I just came back from Austin, Texas. And while these young people cannot vote, I was in a room full of middle and high school students. And when I said I voted against repeal of net neutrality, I got a resounding applause. And so that tells me that, you know, those children have parents Um, They have brothers and sisters who might uh, – and and relatives that are older. And these individuals um, have made it very clear uh, that they believe that the decision the FCC made back in December was a wrong one. And I don't think um, uh, that this issue is going to go away um, from a regulatory standpoint or from a political standpoint.
1: Right. And and it seems to be something that, you know, young people are familiar with, at least with the centrality that the Internet plays in almost all aspects of, of their lives. So so that's a... They
2: are connected. They're digital natives. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm older than you. I, you know, I remember the time of smoke signals. <laughs> but <laughs> well, you know, relatively speaking, I'll just say, you know, dial up, you know, right. Roll phones. Same thing. Okay. So I, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Technologically speaking, it is the same thing as smoke signals. Um, but I remember those days when... Um, um, I you know, you, you wrote letters to keep in touch. Um, you, you, you paid, my gosh, I don't know how much for 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 long distance, 20, 30, 40, fifty cents a, a minute for um, a, a call. Now that means nothing uh, to these individuals, and it means nothing to stay digitally connected um, through various platforms that um, I even um, you know uh, do not use. Uh, and so they take connectivity seriously. And I really think, um, given um, their um, voice, their action, um, actions, um, and, and, and their passion, that this will not be the last time we hear about this issue. Uh, and um, all of us, p- political appointees and politicians, uh, will hear more from them.
1: You know, one thing that uh, I've been watching closely at the FCC that is going to be, I think, a lot harder to undo than what Ajit Pai has done with net neutrality, um, which, you know, might uh, be reversed in the courts again, is uh, everything that's been gearing up towards the Sinclair merger. I did read in the New York Times last week that there is an inspection from uh, the inspector general, (laughs) of course, uh, about how uh, the FCC has handled some of the deregulatory moves in the lead up to this merger. Um, I'm curious if you can kind of lay out if people should be concerned uh, with the prospect of, you know, Sinclair kind of doing what would what would be the largest consolidation of television I believe in U.S. history.
2: Well, one of the things that I have been open about and very vocal about uh, since my first day here is that this move uh, when it comes to consolidation, this wholesale unchecked consolidation, is not one that benefits any of us. Just think about those scrappy, uh, smaller uh, players who want to to take part uh, in this uh, media um, ecology and this ecosystem. Uh, What chance do they have um, if uh, all we do uh, is green light, um, you know, uh, projects um, or green light, um, you know, mergers without the type of scrutiny and review um, that um, is called for. Uh, so to me, uh, the issue is, uh, it is clear that um, the way the, the regulatory um, or uh, no touch by way of a uh, regulatory framework work that this uh, current administration um, is uh, moving in the direction is one that is problematic uh, for uh, the using and consuming uh, public. And I find it problematic uh, that not only uh, do we seem to be um, uh, rubber stamping uh, everything that comes uh, before the majority, uh, but that we are undoing some rules that were put in place, uh, uh, particularly um, the ownership cap that we had in place or uh, or, or that um, that we were instituting, um, you know, by Congress. That we're just seem to be uh, finding ways to uh, to circumvent uh, those rules uh, uh, through uh, various. Uh, Relaxation, and um, I, I think again, again that is um, yeah, problematic uh, when we are just basically raising the ownership cap and, and, and pretending on uh, not to. And, and so, you know, these are the things that I think uh, the public needs to be more aware of because it will change the ownership regime and the um, you know the, the who is uh, being who is at the helm in terms of um, delivering news and other information uh, to the public uh, of. You right. can't undo that once once it's um uh, uh once it's bound.
1: Right. It's it's not like you can um, break up a company like, like the U.S. did with Ma Bell just any day. That that's a no, huge no. maneuver.
2: It is a huge maneuver, and um it's uh, uh you know politically uh, engaged. Mm-hmm. And again, uh once you you said it best, you know once it's bound, it's hard to unravel.
1: And so, you know, more media consolidation when you have more properties in the hand of a single owner usually means that there's less diversity of ownership. And when I say diversity, I mean African-Americans owning stations and Latinos owning stations and women owning stations. Um, And, you know, just more diversity in terms of who owns radio and television stations and newspapers. And I'm wondering if you can kind of Help me understand where we stand with that now in the U.S. and how consolidation will affect that.
2: Well, I, I wish I had this great story to tell uh, when it comes to the prospects um, over the horizon. Um, you know as well as I do when it comes to ownership, uh, when it comes to uh, women and um, people of color, that we're low single digits. Uh, with full power uh, television um, and 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 radio uh, stations, um, and and that in and of itself is is problematic when you when you talk about um, hiring practices, uh, points of views, uh, and the like, and so you have. a, a the majority that's unwilling to do any types of studies that will better educate us to give us the data needed to make uh, any different decisions. Uh, you've got um, a, a majority that's unwilling to put um, any type of uh, rules in place that will encourage um, a more um, ownership and in, in companies doing business uh, in, in the in the wireless market. And so when you see that there appears to be all of these hurdles when it comes to a more inclusive. Uh, uh possibilities or probabilities uh, for, for small uh, businesses, rural uh, businesses and, and businesses that are owned by women and people of color. You, I, I just wish I had a, a positive um, you know outlook, but I do not. but we need to continue to give uh, voice uh, to uh, these issues and push the FCC uh, to do what it takes in order to uh, collect the data needed uh, to further educate, and hopefully act um, if we see that there are market barriers uh, that are preventing these uh, more diverse businesses um, or entities from uh, thriving in this space.
1: And just to clarify, you said single digits of Television stations and and radio stations owned by less
2: than six percent, you know, okay. uh, you know, across the board, less than six percent when it comes to um, a, a television or, and radio uh, stations. I, I, I believe there are four or five African American wow. um, um, owners uh, when it comes to full power uh, television uh, stations. The numbers are basically negligible, and, and so um, the numbers are a little better when it comes to radio, but not much. Uh, years ago, um, we had um, a system in place that would allow a a tax certificate, um, system that was in place that will allow, would have allowed businesses when they, um, engage in a transaction, if they needed to sell off, um, you know, properties in certain areas, because they reach a certain cap, um, that, uh, there were, were economic incentives in place that will allow them to s- sell to underrepresented uh, communities. At that time, it was called the minority tax certificate. It ran into some hiccups. Um, it uh, they did away with it and never looked back about dealing with the issue or the vulnerability of that uh, mechanism, which really moved. Um, uh, just the numbers uh, went from almost uh, you know zero to. Uh, to hundreds um, in, in, in a few years. And now we're back to almost where we started um, uh, back in the um, not-so-golden age uh, of inclusion and diversity. Uh, and so, you know, these are, uh, uh, are mechanisms that are proven that there seems to be no traction uh, from the FCC um, and, and very little traction on the Hill. And Again, we're seeing these numbers um, that are embarrassingly low when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And I think um, when you see all of the excitement on the um, a movie screen you know, this past weekend, that's a reflection of this pent-up frustration that you don't have the type of um, uh, mechanisms in place that will allow um, for that type of exchange, um, uh, information, uh, and uh, entertainment uh, to be distributed. And people want it it's obvious that people uh, want and need uh, to have uh, diversity and inclusion over the air, um, you know, over our radio uh, and television airwaves.
1: And just for our listeners who are unfamiliar, Commissioner Clyburn is talking about the film Black Panther. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) Commissioner Clyburn, I'd I'd like to move on to talk about prison phone rates for a moment. Now, that's an issue that you have focused on throughout your tenure at the commission. And I was wondering if you can kind of Tell our listeners what the problem is, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about what the FCC has or has not done or has undone in relation to it.
2: So one of the little known, unless you're directly impacted, uh, most egregious regimes that I can think of um, in my almost 20 years of uh, regulatory service is the price that the families of inmates, the families, friends, and and, and those who represent them of, of inmates, of the incarcerated, paid to stay in touch. We have heard um, right now, even uh, with some of the reforms that have been allowed to go into place, there are still places in this nation where a 15-minute call will cost you more than $24. Now, we're talking about a a population that are the most economically challenged. Those are uh, the families and friends uh, of the incarcerated, those who have been chronically on the wrong side, or or the not uh, desirable side of the economic divide. And they are being penalized over and over again from a broken market um, that um, you've got a a majority of regulators at the FCC who seem to be indifferent. I say that because there has been no change. Uh, There has been no prospect of attempting to rein in. Um, yeah, this uh, egregious um, uh, regime. Uh, too few people are paying attention to it. Too few uh, policymakers seem to care about the 2.7 million children who are negatively impacted. They can't keep in touch with their loved ones because it's too e- expensive. And um, this broken system has gone on for years. It's breaking up families. Is causing disruption when when it comes to um, how inmates are um, you know acting um, in uh, when they are incarcerated, um, and when seven hundred thousand imprisoned in individuals go home each year. That's the number of people on average that cycle out of uh, facilities each year. Within five years, seventy five percent of them uh, return, in part because they go home as strangers. Because they cannot afford to keep in touch, and so what is not the con- the dots that are not being connected is that a simple fix by lawmakers, state and local and federal, um, and by regulators here at the FCC and at the P- public service commissions in those states, we all individually and collectively can uh, uh, can rein in uh, this uh, phone injustice.
1: Yes. And, and just to, to put this in perspective, we're talking close to $50 for a 30-minute call. If you have two kids and a partner at home, that's $150 a week potentially just to talk for 30 minutes once every seven days.
2: Absolutely. And, and, and those of us who um, are more, uh, you know, economically gifted, um, that's a lot of money. So imagine, um, you know, those who are not. Uh, yes. Only 39% on average of, of individuals who have uh, an incarcerated loved one um, uh, that's away, that's um, they keep in touch on a regular basis, why they cannot afford it.
1: For people who are concerned about this and, and, and net neutrality, uh, what what can people do, you know, when we're talking about how the FCC isn't doing what it should do under, you know, its current leadership? What do you recommend people who are concerned about this
2: do? I think they should call. They should write. They should use our hopefully ever improving online por- uh, portals uh, to uh, to weigh in, because. A lot of times, when you talk about um, inmate calling, that too few people seem to care about the Lifeline program. That too few people uh, seem to care about. A lot of these programs that could be the bridge uh, to, for um, those who are on the other side of the opportunities divide to keep in touch, um, to have, um, to be more empowered uh, by way of uh, great net neutrality principles that will allow for uh, e-commerce and other opportunities online again, we need to hear from you. Um, If people remain passive um, then lawmakers and policy makers are going to assume that everything is okay. But when I go out in the public I hear from those young people who who saying, what in the world can we do? You have to be heard. You have to weigh in. Uh, We are supposed to listen to you. Um, We are supposed to serve you. But we need to hear from you in order to, uh, for us to know whether we're doing something right or, or move or need or if we need improvement. Um, so uh, silence is not golden when it comes to these critical uh, communications issues, and the public again uh, needs to um, to weigh in uh, and and to be heard um, if if uh, truly a difference will be made by us.
1: And um, last question, Commissioner. Thank you so much. Puerto Rico is still without reliable internet and phone service throughout most of the island. I'm curious, what is the FCC doing about this, or what should the FCC be doing about this? It's an ongoing problem.
2: Yes, uh, what we have uh, been doing is relaxing some of our policies when it comes to our universal service programs, um, which include the um, uh, those monies that flow uh, to Puerto Rico uh, to shore up their uh, communications infrastructure, we're releasing those uh, monies. We're doing it in a streamlined, and immediate manner so they can rebuild. We're not waiting uh, for um, you know them to to go through all of the regulatory hoops that are, are standard. We're sending that money to them now. We had uh, people on the ground um, at the from the FCC that as soon it was as soon as it was safe to go, working with. Um, The local authorities to ensure um, uh, that um, that that service delivery and the rest and all of that uh, were streamlined. So we've been um, hands-on with the uh, you know with the governor um, and uh, uh, with um, you know with the 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 mayor of San Juan, and of course we uh, immediately uh, greenlit um, Google's Project Loon, uh, which is um, providing. uh, you know, infrastructure, uh, uh, so that, um, those, uh, people, um, who of course need to be connected, uh, you know, to the internet and other services are, are able to do so. So we're coming up and working with, um, uh, private industry in our, our state and local, um, utility commissions to make sure that we, um, are doing everything we can from an infrastructure standpoint, um, from, releasing dollars immediately, uh, to Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, yes. um, uh, to in, ensure that um, um, that we are a part of the solution and not, um, you know, holding up um, uh, uh, infrastructure build and, and other critical services on uh, those two, on, on those multiple islands um, in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands.
1: And, you know, unfortunately with a situation like this, there's just an interminable amount that, that can be done and, and help that can be provided. Um, uh, Commissioner Clyburn, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to have you.
2: It is my pleasure, April. Take care. So long.
1: One last break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best of the web this week. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. Will, what tab couldn't you close this week?
0: My tab this week is sort of twofold. I'll explain. The first one is an article that appeared in Wired over the weekend. It was written by Antonio Garcia Martinez. And if that name sounds familiar, thank you for listening to our first episode where Antonio Garcia Martinez, a former product manager for Facebook's ads team, was our guest. Martinez wrote, a story called How Trump Conquered Facebook Without Russian Ads. Now, this was a response to the narrative that Russian trolls had propelled Trump to victory somehow through their use of Facebook, their canny use of Facebook to mobilize his supporters and to polarize the electorate. Martinez said there was a different factor at work. And that factor was the ad rates that Donald Trump's campaign faced on Facebook versus those that the Hillary Clinton campaign faced. He says that because Trump's ads were very sensational, they were engaging, they appealed to people's emotions, they got shared more, they were more effective, Trump's audience may have been demographically cheaper to reach, and he suggested that in effect Trump was paying far less to advertise on Facebook than Clinton was. But here's where the second part of the tab comes in. On Tuesday, a Facebook executive tweeted that, in fact, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were facing roughly the same ad rates to get their ads published on Facebook. That seemed to contradict Martinez's narrative. If you read them together, you begin to get a sense of just how complex online advertising really is, and the question of whether Facebook's system favored Trump over Clinton becomes a little murkier. April, what did you make of all this?
1: I thought it was a really interesting and important article to point out that the more engaging something is, uh, the actually less that you'll pay for it to continue to get engagement on social media. I think most people think that the more you pay, the more people will see it. That's not necessarily always the case. It also took a little focus off Russia and back to the campaigns that were also trying to manipulate social media for people's attention. But one thing that it didn't touch and something that it wasn't really intending to get at but something that I'd like to talk about more is uh, that there were a ton of posts – On uh, social media about the campaigns and about the election that we don't know who they came from. Right. Because Facebook doesn't require people to disclose, uh, you know, who paid for political ads online. And that's a conversation that's going to be continuing to happen, particularly at the FEC soon. The Federal Election Commission is uh, is opening a rulemaking on this topic or is, is talking about opening a rulemaking on this topic and is expected to soon. Uh, and, you know, political action committees uh, could spend as much as they wanted on Facebook posts and uh, didn't have to 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 say that they – who they were, you know, in favor of or who they were working for. So, you know, there's a lot to continue to talk about with this. And I'm I'm happy that he kind of tilted the conversation back to how people even in the United States, not just Russia, were manipulating social media as well, not just manipulating it, but using it rather to 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 reach the public in um, perhaps manipulative ways. Let me put it that way.
0: Yeah. And, and anytime we talk about one piece of this puzzle of how the Trump and Clinton campaigns used Facebook or how Russians used Facebook or how the ad prices worked, we're always just looking at at one bit of it. I think that's important to keep in mind. My personal bias is that anytime we're talking about ads, we're probably talking about a less significant share of the problem than we talk about the newsfeed itself and the content that was actually shared organically in people's newsfeeds. Ads can only do so much. That said, a lot of a lot of people do think that the Trump campaign was very savvy in how it used Facebook, particularly to suppress turnout among potential Clinton voters with negative ads.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Teresa Hong, who was one of the main brains behind the Trump campaign's digital efforts, and actually told the BBC earlier, or, this year, or rather last year, that she helped to write Trump's Facebook posts. She said, "Without Facebook, Trump wouldn't have won." You know, and and she's probably. Right about that because she was actually like one of the main people that was working, you know, with the folks of Cambridge Analytica and the other folks who were really working to game social networks, uh, you know, for the benefit of their candidate. You know, I, I think over a billion dollars were spent by both candidates on social media advertising and, and, and marketing and boosting posts and what have you, uh, you know, in the 2016 election. Uh, it's uh, definitely a conversation that we need to continue to have.
0: <laughs> yeah, especially with midterms coming up. All right, April, what tab could you not close this week?
1: So the tab I couldn't close this week was a tweet. <laughs> so not necessarily a news story, but if you can find it, it's from user T-E-E-J-U-S underscore underscore. Uh, and he says that I just started driving for Uber and Lyft and I've started getting a lot more compliments on my music since generalizing my passengers by one of these 11 playlists and so basically you know people go in for like five to to 15 minute rides and he has these playlists that have you know anywhere from 10 to 14 songs on them and uh there it just kind of shows how basic everybody is (laughs) or how kind of like normal we are Uh, one of the playlists is heady bros one of them are white dudes who look like they like rap basic 20s to 30s people Right. So people who would like songs from the aughts, uh, people who are over 30, quiet people, uh, POC, um, effing hipsters, uh, women in early 20s, early 20s femme. Uh, and I thought this tweet like went super viral, viral, right? Over 52,000 uh, retweets, uh, almost 250,000 likes. Um, he is a uh, he, he appears to be from his Twitter profile, you know, uh, uh African-American male. And he's basically been able to uh, concisely generalize people, uh, you know, based on, I don't know, just how basic everyone's music tastes is. I I, I really (laughs) thought it was super funny.
0: Yeah, I like this for a couple reasons. One of which is I always sort of feel when I'm in the backseat of an Uber or a Lyft that the driver is like secretly judging me somehow. And this just kind of confirms that like, yeah, they're up there judging you. And uh, not only that, but they're trying to like play you a little bit by by predicting what kind of music you're going to like based on your appearance. Effing uh, Hipsters is definitely one that, uh, that got me a little bit. Neutral Milk Hotel was in there and The Cure, I think. So I totally would have been sitting in there and he he would turn on Neutral Milk Hotel and I'd go, man, this guy's great. And I would give him a huge tip. So I think I'm guessing a lot of other people. Right,
1: dudes who like rap rap had Chance the Rapper. (laughs) You know, I thought, I mean, he's probably spot on and that's why people like it. I think one thing to note on this is that I'm not sure that this uh, guy whose tweet went viral and generated, you know, content for news websites or whatever made money from this, you know, in the same way the woman who... uh, posted about the dress, whether it was, you know, gold or blue or black or white, whatever colors people thought it was. Uh, she didn't make money from that. But, you know, BuzzFeed made a killing, right, because they had all of this content about it and all these ads that ran against it. Uh, what really came to the fore for me from for this is when I see these types of tweets that go viral, I wonder how much are the creative people who actually post this, you know, and who are actually thinking uh in a way that a lot of people can relate to uh you know how how are they profiting off this at all or or is this uh is this something that that they're not profiting off of he did post a patreon account that he has if people want to donate to him he said you can pay him some money and he'll let you know what playlist matches for you
0: that was a really savvy move on his part i like that
1: uh i thought it was really appropriate and i hope that some people paid him apparently a few people sent him five bucks so you know right on dude (laughs) That does it for our show for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthenatslate.com. Send us your gripes, your tips, whatever you want.
0: You can follow me and April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Oremus and April is at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest, FCC Commissioner Mignon Clyburn. You can find her at m.clyburnfcc.
1: And if you like this show, help us spread the word. We'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a comment and review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Thanks.
0: If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is the wonderful Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Allis at A Room with a VU Studios in Santa Barbara.
1: Thanks to Alberto Hernandez at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. We'll see y'all next week.